We'll open your Bibles, please, to Luke 13. We're continuing our study through the Gospel of Luke. We're on Luke chapter 13, verse 22 through 30. Luke 13, uh, 22 through 30. Hear God's word, Luke 13, 22. He, Jesus, went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you. I do not know where you come from. And then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. It's a powerful passage. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God, it endures forever. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our great God, by your spirit, would you move in our midst, we pray and direct our hearts to Christ. Might we see him today in his name, amen. So verse 22, uh, Luke reminds us that Jesus is on a journey and it's his first reference to Jesus traveling since he began his journey narrative. And if you recall, a while back, his journey narrative begins in that powerful verse, Luke 9, 51, where Jesus, where Luke says of Jesus, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And there's this courageous commitment of Jesus, come what may, that he's going to Jerusalem to the goal of his ministry which warms our hearts, it staggers our thinking to regard him in such a steadfast, resolute manner that I know what's before me and nothing is gonna dissuade me from my goal because I'm coming to get my beloved. And so the journey narrative continues all the way until Jesus does enter Jerusalem. And so it's this long section, delightful section. You know, one of the side benefits of it is it impresses upon us that you and I in Jesus are too on a journey. Our spiritual life is a journey to glory in him. So in 951, 
when Jesus said that, he begins to meander about Galilee, from Galilee in the north down to Jerusalem. And yet it's this circuitous journey he makes because he's not so interested in beelining as efficiently as possible. In fact, sometimes he retraces his steps. And his goal during this period of time is to train his 12 disciples. Like us, they need a lot of work. And so he just pours into them. And in addition to that, he teaches in all the little villages and hamlets that he can get to, which I I love. Like he doesn't pass them by in route to bigger, more important places. So he goes to all these little places teaching about the kingdom of God. But always, whether he's actually heading to Jerusalem or pausing in his journey, His focus is there. The cross is front and center in his eyesight. He knows his destination. He knows what he's going for. So in all this section, undergirding it all, whatever he's saying and doing is this single-minded goal of the redemption he's heading to Jerusalem to accomplish. His cross, his gospel for you, for you today. And our Savior is a king like no other. There's none like him. And he conquers by a cross. His throne is his cross. That which is repugnant to us is his glory. Because it merely expresses what his inmost heart is like. God in his glory is a God who takes what he has and throws it down to satisfy and fulfill the needs of those who are hungry and thirsty, who are sinful and condemned. So, I didn't get through my passage today. This is gonna have to be part one. I have three points, we're only gonna do two. One is the question, one is the challenge, and then the consequences. So first, the question, verse 22 and 23. So as he's walking along with his disciples, and you can just imagine this crowd flinking Jesus as he's walking along. And someone in the crowd, it may be a man, it may be a woman, someone in the crowd like, gets a moment and says, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Like, will there be few that are ultimately saved? And so why does this person ask that question is, you know, we just imagine, is the person just curious? Is it kind of a philosophical question? Is the person kind of pluming himself, as one writer says, like, I, you know, we're the inner crowd, we know we're okay, the select privileged few, or is this person burdened, maybe fearful, in doubt? So on the one hand, it's a very relevant question. Like People asked this question. The rabbis speculated on this question. There was a lot of confusion in small hamlets of Palestine. They taught big stuff. And so some rabbis wrote in kind of a pessimistic vein that only very few will be saved. But it does seem like the preponderance of them said, well, Israel will be saved except for some gross sinners within Israel, a more optimistic answer. 
So maybe this person has just this, for a while has had this burning question in his or her heart, when I get the chance. <laughs> Have you ever had that feeling like, when I get the chance, I'm asking Jesus this question. And he got a window, asked it. Well, on the other hand, think of Jesus' ministry up to this point. And Jesus himself has said some incredibly strong things. If you, if you review it all, that salvation's not just a matter of being a part of Israel. You can be racially Israelite, ethnically, belong to the nation. Jesus keeps saying, look, that, that's not what it's about. It's a privilege, but it's not what it's about. It's a matter of your heart of being good soil that the seed can grow in, of, of faith and repentance, of bearing fruit to new life. I mean, if you go back to 1137, for example, he's in the home of a Pharisee, and he, he looks at that Pharisee like, square in the eyes and says, hey, you know, it's all well and good that you're gonna wash all your dishes and your hands so meticulously, but you've got a grimy heart that you need to clean up. Or in 1235, he, he looks and he says, um, you need to dress yourself for action and be faithful in your calling for when the owner of the house comes home. Or you could say in 13.1, somebody asked him, what about those folks, a tower fell on them? Like, were they really bad sinners that that happened? He says, look, unless you repent, you're gonna perish. Or maybe this person has had a latent question and what Jesus just said piqued his interest or her interest when Jesus talked about the kingdom of God being a mustard seed or just a little piece of leaven and he's going, wait a second, a mustard seed, a little piece of leaven, that's small, it's tiny and kind of missed the second part. There's gonna be a tree and a huge thing of dough. Whatever it is, are only a few going to be saved is the question. And what do you think about that today? How does that register with you, you know, that's not a question that our culture likes. Can you imagine this question in our pluralistic culture, how, how incredibly intolerant this question is to our culture, unless it's, unless it's a real question. We live in an optimistic culture where everything, we just assume it's gonna turn out okay. It, it, it's rooted in our, our mentality that everything's just going to be fine. So a question like that. Well, I remember years ago, I had a visit, pastoral visit to a new family I just met. We were in the north of Peru at the time. I'd met a guy and I was still trying to sort things out. And the man and surrounded by his wife, his family, and we had this talk and he talked a long time. He was a man that loved his Inca heritage. And he was very critical of the Spanish conquest, what they did to their society and how they introduced Roman Catholicism in that time. And so he says, you know, uh, pastor, the Incas had three rules. It was very simple, three rules. Uh, don't steal, don't lie, and don't be lazy. And that sounds a lot like the 10 commandments. You're telling me they're going to hell. And I was kind of taken aback. You know, it's a hard question. And, but it's that question, what about the person who's never heard of the Lord Jesus Christ? I mean, that is part of what drives a church like us into missions around the world. And, and that day with that man whom I had such a high regard for, 
the emotive force of that question registered in a deeper way than before. This man with this strong identity that I, I have ink and blood. What about them? And so I, I struggled to respond well, as well as I would have liked to have. How does Jesus respond to a similar question? Well, that gets us to the challenge. Second point, verse 24 through 27. So this man or this woman asked, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And how does Jesus respond to that question? And Luke says, and he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. That's how he answers the question. So pay close attention to how Jesus responds. He doesn't directly respond in the way the guy expects or really wants, does he? Now, he's, he's not being like a slippery politician. Like, it's not that you can't, like you can't get the truth out of him. He's, he's not a guy who's got his finger up to the weather and trying to give you what you want when it's a sticky issue. He's not uncomfortable and wanting to defend the character of God, so he starts waffling and evading. That's far from the truth. The issue is that Jesus is meeting this person's deepest need. He's meeting the person's real need and the question below the question that is arising through that. Because surely underneath that question is, am I one of those? Are my children one of those? And that has to be the burning question in this father or mother, man, woman. So as is his way, Jesus uses the person's burden to teach a fundamental truth about the kingdom of God, and he does so to everyone, not just to this person, to all those present and to you sitting here today. That's why Luke records it. So just notice when Jesus responds, he says strive, and that's a plural verb. And Jesus addresses himself to them, not just him or her. Like, he's talking to everyone. He, he launches from the question to what's most essential for everyone to understand. Everyone has the question deep down, and everyone needs to redirect his or her focus to what's most essential. So think of how Jesus answered earlier questions or requests. I mean, Jesus just isn't easy on us because we need probing questions. So this week we're gonna talk about catechism and it comes out of questions like this as we teach our children. So, I mean, just think of the guy that said, and who is my neighbor and where that went? Or think of the other guy that said, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me and, and where that went because Jesus knows what we really need. And, and Hebrews says Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the more I live, the more I love it. That the way we see Jesus here is the way he is in heaven when he mediates for us. So I look at my own prayer life, my struggles in praying well and correctly, and I see Jesus responding this way to a guy or a lady who has a deep burden. And it reassures me to say, look, even if I'm misdirected, even if I'm egocentric, even if I just care about me, you know, that as I submit my prayers 
to the Father through the Son, I know that Jesus is taking that and seeing the good in it and shaping it such that when he presents it to the Father, he presents it as I would have prayed were I to be wiser and more godly. So here Jesus converts this speculative inquiry into a spiritual moral challenge, really a call, a summons to enter the kingdom of God now while there's an opportunity. And that's what's most essential. And so knowledge about whether there are few or many who will be saved really is not the most important. The most important is that you're sitting right in front of the king of the kingdom who's on his way to Jerusalem for you and you have an opportunity to look at your sin and your need and lay it before him and say, would you wash me clean? And to do so now and not to put it off. Jesus is essentially saying, look, I'm on the way to hell for you. Would you believe upon me? It's an urgent invitation to come to Jesus. And not just for that time, but for today. And that's the most important thing for you, and that was the most urgent thing the man I was speaking with in Peru needed. Look, God sent this inexperienced young preacher to your house today from Mississippi because he wants you to know Jesus. And the king offers himself to you today. So also, this, behind this, Jesus' response is also a verse like Deuteronomy 29, 29. And in Deuteronomy 29, 29, God says this, look, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of the law. Now notice that, there's, there's a limit God sets on our knowledge. There are some things God chooses to reveal to us, but there's some things he chooses not to reveal no matter how much we crave it. He charges us to trust him with what he doesn't reveal and to make good use of what he does reveal. I mean, that's our responsibility. So we approach the hard questions through the lens of what we know about God, his character, righteousness, grace, and his purposes. And especially through a savior who right now is making his way to Jerusalem. It's not speculative to Jesus. It's deeply personal to Jesus. And that's expressly why he's in route to Jerusalem. So a crucial doctrine for us is the sufficiency of the scriptures. I just want you to ask you, do you, do you regard the scriptures as sufficient for your needs? The, you know, if you're new to Presbyterianism, we have a document called the Westminster Confession of Faith, and it summarizes what we think the Bible teaches about various themes that are important. And what it says about the sufficiency of scripture is that everything necessary for us to know regarding God's glory and our salvation and faith and life is, is revealed in the scriptures. And so I've had conversations with people and it's been difficult for me to, to deal with this, but they say something like this, because I can't know all things, then I prefer to know nothing or to remain agnostic about everything. 
And, but you look at this person whom you love and you're saying, wait, a human can't live like that. No human can live like that. What, you, what God has revealed to you, make good use of. You see, there's a salutary effect to knowing we're just not God. Like every day to wake up and say, I'm not God in my circumstances. But also knowing what God is like. So we humble ourselves before him and say, he's gonna do the right thing. He's gonna do good. I don't have to have all the answers. When I don't know the answers, I look at Christ and say, whatever it be, it wasn't hypothetical for him. He, he went to that root place of suffering for me. So Colin Hansen writes this biography on Tim Keller. It's really a, a summary of um, influences on his life. It's a delightful book I read during sabbatical. And he has this moving account early on in his book of Keller's wrestlings during college with very hard questions, like questions like this. And finally, after an excruciating little period of time, he comes to a friend's house, the friend wakes up, and he's sitting on the floor of his friend's bedroom waiting for him. And it said, with what I do know about God, especially Jesus and his cross, I can trust him and not judge him for what I don't understand. And that is where it goes down to. It's like that wonderful hymn by William Cowper, God moves in a mysterious way. And my mother's friend cross-stitched it for her uh, after my brother's passing. And it, it's hanging in her living room. And he, he has the um, line that says, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind his frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. So the Bible teaches us that his ordinary means to bring people to faith and repentance is through the gospel preached. So Romans 10, 14 says, and how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And so his ordinary means is that if he's gonna accomplish a salvation in a person's life, the gospel's gonna make it there. And that's why a church like ours, we say, we wanna give generously to the promotion of the gospel around the world. Back to the Westminster Confession of Faith, however, with much wisdom, they say this, and I love this little line, God in his ordinary providence makes use of means yet is free to work without, above, and against them at his pleasure. Which is a wise statement. Essentially it says you can't box God in. His ordinary means is that a preacher would arrive with the gospel, but God can do what God does. And he's abounding in loving kindness. And the history of the world attests to that. And elsewhere in the Confession of Faith, it says that the church is the people of God for the gathering and perfecting of the saints out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. But God is God and he abounds in grace and we don't have to explain everything. Well, before I jump into his exhortation, I just wanna ask, does the scriptures indicate anything with regard to this question of few and many? 
So there are some who would say that Jesus' response implicitly answers the question in the affirmative. The fact that there's a narrow door and that many try to enter but aren't able to implicitly affirms that there will indeed be only a few in heaven. There are those who teach that. And the sense is reinforced in Matthew, and Matthew actually says, you know, wide and easy is the way that many find it leads to destruction, and narrow and hard is the way that few find that leads to life. At the same time, those that speak of only a few ultimately saved, they also do happily acknowledge other passages of Scripture, for example, Genesis, which... You know, for your life of praise, God takes Abraham out when there are very few believers and says, look at the stars in the heavens and the sand on the seashore, so shall your offspring be, which is offspring by faith in the Redeemer to come. Or the passage we read in our call to worship today, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They still would acknowledge a vast, innumerable multitude of the saved by the blood of the Lamb. But in addition, I just want to say that I side with those theologians and commentators, and I guess one of my favorites is this article by B.B. Warfield. It used to be a professor at Princeton back in the early 20th century. He writes a great article which you can access called, Are There Few That Be Saved? And in his article, he affirms that not only will it be an immeasurable multitude considered absolutely in the sense that just a group itself is a lot of people, but that it will be an immeasurable multitude considered comparatively. That is compared to the number of those who are finally lost in judgment. And that is that I would think that the tenor of scripture would indicate that the saved in heaven would be much more than the condemned in hell. Spurgeon famously said this, I do abhor from my heart that continual whining of some men about their own little church as the remnant. The few that are to be saved, they're always dwelling upon straight gates and narrow ways and upon what they conceive to be a truth that but few shall enter heaven. I believe there will be more in heaven than in hell because Christ in everything is to have the preeminence, Colossians 1.18, and I cannot conceive how he could have the preeminence if there are to be more in the dominions of Satan than in paradise. Moreover, it is said there is to be a multitude that no man can number in heaven. I've never read that there is to be a multitude that no one can number in hell. And certainly, as we think through Scripture, Scripture, however we interpret this, does not lead us to think that God's grace is meager and measured, but rather that God's grace is abundant and abounding. Nor does it lead us to think of Jesus as only the Savior of a small portion of humanity, but rather Jesus as the Savior of humanity. So what do we do about Matthew's few in his hard way or Luke's narrow door that many won't be able to enter? And I, I think the best interpretation with Warfield and others is to regard those statements as especially talking about that generation of Israelites. In, in the experience of Jesus's ministry and those he was addressing, many of them would end up rejecting him or rather, actually most, the nation rejects him in Jerusalem where he is heading right then and says, crucify him, crucify him. Comparatively few of that generation 
will be saved. Remember that Jesus, just a couple of chapters earlier, called his followers a little flock. Well, Jesus could also be describing your experience now as well. Because we look around our culture and it's unnerving to think those that are naming the name of Christ, are they decreasing or increasing in our country? Or even the stats I pulled up last week about China, that in 1980 there were only a million believers and today some estimate 175 million. What a mushrooming of the growth of those who would call Christ their savior and yet China has 1.4 billion. It's still a small percentage. But nevertheless, what Jesus has just told us right before then, it's supposed to impact our understanding of what he's saying here is that that mustard seed becomes a tremendous tree and that little leaven converts and transforms the whole mass of dough. There's gonna be an overwhelming, massive movement into the kingdom of God for God's abundant grace. Evidently, there's amazing things in store. With all that said, focus where Jesus focuses, the driving challenge that Jesus makes to this man or this woman that asks him is don't bother yourself with calculations and arithmetic or speculative questions. You have an opportunity right here. I'm heading to Jerusalem and you have a chance to come to me. What is your responsibility and your urgency today? So Jesus redirects his question and says, will you respond to me? I'm a very strange king. I lay down my life for my people. So Jesus looks at him and says, strive to enter through the narrow door. So we think of that word strive, and I'm gonna talk about this more next week, but just real briefly, strive, and how are we to view that? Strive to enter through the narrow door. That sounds like a whole lot of work, a lot of effort to get in. I read it and I think of a a wide receiver trying to establish some distance on his defender so he could be the one that threads through the defense and gets into the end zone. Is it by chance saying that I am justified by striving, that you are declared righteous by striving? Well, no. Jesus is the one that strives on your behalf. You receive it as a gift. But are you saved by striving? Yes. Because save is a broad word that encompasses the whole Christian life all the way to glory. You see, faith that passively receives the gift of the gospel, that the judge looks at us and looks at us on the merits of Jesus and says, forgiven and righteous, is the same faith that joins me to Jesus in a relationship and thereby becomes active as Jesus by his spirit moves in me to change. And so it's a change over time as I begin to bear fruit to life and my priorities and my affections change and it's a, it's a striving. Saving faith produces a change. It's Philippians 2, 12, and 13, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I work because God by his grace already worked in me salvation. And this striving is a really strong word. It's the word agonizomai in Greek. 
We get the word agonize or agony from it. It means as we're looking at ourselves, we're looking at Jesus, we ask ourselves, am I just half-hearted? Am I a, a reluctant follower? An apathetic follower? Or am I wholehearted? See, it's a word that comes from the Greek games, from the, the fight, the struggle, the arena. It's an aggressive word. And so we know the Christian life is a fight and a struggle. Am I persevering in faith in the ordinary means God has given me of the word and the sacraments and prayer and fellowship and service? Am I taking, making use of those in my life that God uses to preserve my faith in him? Well, then furthermore, he calls it a narrow door. And so why is this door narrow? When I read the word narrow door, I think of moving kids into college. Alan, we needed a couch in our living room. And over Christmas, Alan went on Facebook Marketplace and found this cellar right around our neighborhood that had this couch that we could buy at a reasonable price. And we go there me and William, and I could not believe they had not even moved the couch down the stairs ready for us. It was in this nook in this recess of the house up this narrow passageway, this narrow doorway, twisted and turned this couch to be able to buy it from them. But see, what Jesus is saying is that we can view entering the kingdom of God the same way. We can say, I have my agenda and my mindset, the furniture I want to bring with me into the door. You see, it's a narrow door because there's only one savior. There's only one savior who is the way, the truth, and the life. There's no multiple roads. There's one. There's one door. There's only one savior who set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem for you. There's only one who fulfilled God's law for you. There's only one who took all your guilt upon himself for you. There's only one who was judged in hell for you. There's only one who resurrected from the grave for you. And it's a narrow door because you can't bring other gods into the door with you. You can't bring your sin in with you. You can't bring your good works in with you. You can't bring other identities in with you. You can't bring spiritual furniture, good or bad, into the door along the narrow way with you that would dictate who you are or what you're about. You are totally changed. That pitiful little faith that you put in Jesus that's so humble, so weak, has this power to join you to Jesus and turn your life upside down to where all you're doing is offering yourself unreservedly to him. And then you enter this narrow way where you start to see more and more of what you're living for and you get to believe and repent and believe and repent, always trusting the finished work of Jesus on your behalf. So Jesus looks at you and says, look, don't procrastinate, don't postpone. Now's the day of salvation, but why would we when we have a savior like him who set his face to go to Jerusalem to get you because he delights in you? What a redeemer. God's people said, amen. Let's stand.